Hello, welcome everyone. It's so great to have you here as, uh, with Dr. Paul Root Wolpe today. We will be discussing Frankenstein and the Golem. A little about our speaker. So Paul Root Wolpe is a PhD in the Raymond Shinazi Distinguished Research Chair of Jewish Bioethics, Professor of Medicine, Pediatrics, Psychiatry and Sociology, and the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Dr. Wolpe's scholarly work focuses on the social, religious, and ideological impact of technology and biotechnology on the human condition. And with that, I will let you take it away. Well, welcome everybody. So happy to have you all with me. We're gonna do a fun one today, talking about Frankenstein and the Golem. I'm gonna start by sharing my screen. Give me one second for that. If you have a choice between the two, it's much better to see the slides than to see me. The slides will be much more entertaining than my face. So um, focus on the slides if you, if you don't have a big, I have a big monitor so I can see both. Uh, I mean, I have a separate monitor so I can see both, but if you can't see both easily, I strongly recommend you go for the slides rather than me. Um, so uh, this is a delight for me. I love, I don't give this talk that often and has evolved over time. I, I had the pleasure of teaching a course on Frankenstein with an incredible co-teacher who's a, an English professor, um, a couple of years ago, and it really increased my appreciation of the Golem story to really delve deeply into Frankenstein. So hopefully we'll get to learn a little bit about both today. Take a quick look at these pictures on the uh, slide. On the left is a picture of the Golem. On the right is a picture of Frankenstein that's a little odd, but we will get back to both of those as we move forward. So take a look at them because they will come up again later. Okay. So what I wanna do is I wanna talk a little bit about the golem, then I wanna talk a little bit about Frankenstein, and then I wanna talk about the comparison of the two. And what I wanna get at is how these tales, both of which are one ancient and one old, uh, Mary Shelley published Frankenstein in 1818. So four years ago was the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein. And the other one is, of course, much, much older than that. And yet, I think they are powerful resources and comments on contemporary technology. And so the question I want us to ask is, what can we learn from these two tales? And I think the answer is we learn some different things from them both. They're both very, very productive resources for learning these lessons, but the lessons they teach us are different. So let's start with the golem. So this is a picture of a uh, sculpture by Gerberti called The Gates of Paradise. Uh, was uh, created um, somewhere in the 15th century. Uh, he's an early re Renaissance uh, sculpture, creator of these bronze doors of the Baptist baptistry of the Florence Cathedral. And why do I start with this? Because that is a picture of the creation of Adam. That's what he tried to sculpt there. That is Adam on the ground. That is God standing over him and the angels above God in the moment that God first creates Adam. And the reason that that's important is because Adam was the first golem. 
because what a golem is, is a human form that is animated, but as yet has no soul. And the sages tell us that in the first about 12 hours of Adam's existence after God created Adam, he had no soul yet. So Adam is considered the first golem. This book, Sode Rizaya, is um, the earliest known account of how to create a golem. It's a medieval magical manuscript, the secrets of mysticism of the archangel Raziel, Rizaya, um, created in the 12th century by Eliezer or uh, Judah of Worms. Um, and it is a magical manual. It doesn't quite tell you how to create a golem, but it tells you things about creating a golem. The first book that contains full instructions about creating a golem is Sefer Yitzirah, the book of creation. Um, and it gives you instructions. And what I'm gonna talk about in a couple of minutes is, well, why can't we all just grab that book and make golems? Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Though this idea of a golem is um, something that recurs in many, many different ways and many different guises over the course of Jewish history. One legend says Jeremiah, Yermiahu created a golem. Solomon Ibn Gabriel was supposed to have created a female golem. So there are stories, and I'll talk a little bit about them. But let's first look at um, what a golem is, at least from our sort of more modern understanding, looking back in history, because it is really important to understand that the idea of a golem and exactly um, the way the kind of populace thought about golems changed over the course of Jewish history. So here is a very uh, famous portrayal of a golem. And I'm gonna step out for a minute to make a comment. Remember I asked you to look at those pictures in the opening slide? Well, here is that picture of the golem in the opening slide. Here's another very famous picture of the golem. And as you can see, you can see my cursor, right? Someone shake your head if you can see the cursor moving on the picture. Great, thank you. So notice that is supposed to say the Hebrew word emet, aleph mem tough but the artists didn't know their Hebrew very well and they made it Aleph Mem Hey. So they actually miswrote what should be at the top of the golem's head here. In this portrayal, this is supposed to say golem, but if you know your Hebrew, you'll know that in fact, he put in a Samach instead of a Mem Sofit, a final Mem. So one of the funny things about collecting pictures of the golem is how often they get it wrong. They get the Hebrew wrong, they get the idea wrong, um, and this is just two examples. So that's just kind of a editorial comment about some of the images I'll show you. There are mistakes in them. So um, what is the story of the golem? The most, one of the most famous that started the more modern view of the golem. Um, it starts with Rava, uh, who took a passage from our sacred texts, which we are going to look at in detail a little later on, but not now, that convinced him that a pious person should be able to create a golem. So he actually creates one. And he sends the golem to Rabbi Zeira, and that is who is portrayed in this picture, not Rabbi, but Zeira. 
And the uh, passage says, the rabbi spoke to him, Zahira spoke to him, but the man did not answer, which then indicated to Zira that he could not speak, which meant that he was a golem, and Zira returned him to dust. This is an important idea that we'll come back to, and that is that tradition in the, in the traditional view of the golem, because it has no soul, the golem cannot speak. And this idea of language as being the fundamental sort of human marker or indicator, we don't have time to get into, but it's tied into the whole sort of ancient Jewish view of language. The fact that God creates the universe through words, the, the incredible power of the spoken voice and of words to create. And so pious human beings can create a golem, but the golem themselves does not have the power of creation. They do not have language because they have no soul. There's a story in the Babylonian Talmud, a kind of cryptic one, that says that on the eve of every Shabbat, Yehuda Hanasi, one of the, of course, great uh, Jewish uh, sages of all time, the redactor of the Talmud, uh, his pupils, Rab Hanina and Rab Hoshea, who devoted themselves especially to the sort of more um, mystical and magical parts of Judaism, the, the accepted mystical and magical parts of Judaism, used every Friday to create a delicious calf to eat by means of the Sefer Yetzirah. In other words, they created a golem calf, which they ate every Shabbat. Kind of beats having to go to the market if you can just get some dust and clay together and create your dinner, but you have to be pretty pious to do that. The sort of modern view of the golem as a servant first seemed to come into the legend, Jewish legend around the 16th century through the uh, Polish rabbi Elijah of Chelm, who was the first one to make a golem as kind of a servant for a functional purpose, as opposed for something like eating for dinner. But the most famous story of the golem, of course, is for those of you who know the story, is the story of the Golem of Prague, created by Rav Udalow, who was called the Maharal. And the word Maharal is just a acronym of Morenu, our teacher, uh, Harav Lo. And if you go to Prague, this is a picture uh, from Prague. I've been there, I've seen the statue. There is, he, Lo is so respected in the city of Prague as a leader, not only by the Jewish community, but by the historical um, local community, that there is a statue of him uh, in the town square in front of, right in front of City Hall. In fact, it's, a, it's not just a statue somewhere, it's in a very honored place in the city. It isn't that flattering a statue. I, I, I show you a close up of the face to show you that I'm not sure anybody would particularly want to be portrayed that way. But in fact, it is supposed to be an honorable. Uh, you know, a very, it's a very imposing uh, statue in its place. And in addition, if you go to Prague, you can not only see the statue of, Ra of Rablo in the, um, of the Maharal at City Hall, but if you go to the Jewish quarter, you can enter by seeing a statue of the golem himself. It, it stands at the entrance of the Jewish quarter, um, 
And it was um, actually not an ancient statue. It was created for a 1951 movie about the golem. Uh, and it sort of uh, portrays the golem in, in a particular way that is not sort of the classic way we think of a golem. But the point I'm making is that even today in Prague, this story of the golem exists and you see uh, remnants of it um, around the town. And I'll show you the real example of it in a moment. But first, what is the actual story of the golem? Uh, it's a folk tale, not a literary tale. For the most part, it's not written, but has been transferred by word of mouth. Um, the most famous story, the one of the Maharal, doesn't seem to appear anywhere in writing for a couple centuries after his death. When it actually began to be told, we don't really know. We do know that Lowe, as I said, was very, very well respected in his day, and the Habsburg emperor, uh, Rudolf II, who was very into the cult, and into mysticism in Kabbalah, even though, of course, he wasn't Jewish, used to meet with Lowe. We know of at least one certain meeting, and there are indications that he met with him more than once to try to understand Jewish mysticism through this famous rabbi. Uh, still, despite that, the Jewish community of Prague uh, was under persecution at the time and oppression, uh, especially at the hands of, uh, of a bishop who was at the time who was very, very anti-Semitic, and of course, not too surprisingly, in some ways was a convert from Judaism. And when he became Catholic and became a bishop, um, doubled down on his persecution of the Jews. So what's the story? The story is that Rob Lowe went to the banks of the uh, Voltava River, which goes through Prague, uh, through clay, created a, a, a human-shaped form, and then brought it to life. As you see in this picture, if you look at uh, where I'm pointing with the cursor here, he has a, uh, this, is, this is the Maharal, he has a scroll in his hand that he is about to place into the mouth of the golem and by putting it in the golem's mouth will animate the golem into a living creature. Um, what this, as the story goes, as the golem increased in its size and power. Um, it became more and more violent. Soon it went on a rampage, uh, killing non-Jews. It was created by the Maharal as a protector of the Jewish community, but his intention was not to have them kill anybody, but simply to be a preventive measure. But the golem gets out of control, uh, and pretty soon everyone was scared of this golem, um, and, and not just Jews, but not just non-Jews, but Jews. Um, and then it eventually, according to some legends or different versions of this legend, started attacking Jews too. Um, one version of the le legend says that confronted with this golem, the emperor himself approached the Maharal and asked him to do something about the golem. There are other versions of it too. Uh, one version says that if the, the emperor said to um, the Maharal that if he stops the golem, the emperor would make sure the persecution of Jews would stop. Um, and uh, finally, uh, the rabbi accepts the offer and puts the golem out of commission. Now, how does he put the golem out of commission? Well, he animated the golem by placing the scroll in the golem's mouth, and he deanimates the golem by removing the scroll from one version of the golem story and how the golem is animated and 
unanimated. Another one, and this is a contemporary sculpture of a golem, this, this uh, uh, artist's view of what the golem's face might look like. Um, but I'm going to use it to show you the other way. The second way that the golem is animated in these legends is through writing the word emet, truth, on the golem's forehead, aleph, mem, tough. And then to deanimate the golem, you simply take your thumb and you rub off the, uh, see the emet there? Now watch the aleph. You rub off the aleph. And you'll see that the word that is left is mate, which means death. And so when you remove the olive of truth from the golem's head, the golem is deactivated and falls into, back into clay. If you go to Prague, you will probably, uh, if you do the Jewish tour at all, see this building which is called the Old New Synagogue, the Old New Synagogue. Uh, and this is where the story has it, the golem went to um, his final resting place. And uh, if you look on the side of that building here, you'll see these uh, metal steps going up the side. They go up to that door that I have circled. I'll show you a close-up. That's the door. And uh, legend has it that if you go in there and, and allowed into the attic, which no one is, um, you will see a mound of dirt on the floor, now covered with talasim. And that is the remains of the golem of Prague uh, after uh, the Maharal reduced the golem back to a lump of clay. Um, some of you someday can go there and get someone to let you into the attic, but uh, I actually prefer to keep the image in my mind and think of it as this beautiful uh, story of the end of the golem still somehow being up there. The golem has become a story, not just for us, but all over the world. Um, here is Isaac Beshevis Singer's Bishing, Isaac book called The Golem, Ellie Wiesel's book called The Golem. Some of you, I hope, may have read Michael Chabum's book, Cavalier and Clay. If you haven't, you should. Beautiful book, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and a golem is a major character in that book. And there are many, many other books uh, about the golem. Uh, the one on the bottom there called The Golem and the Ginny is a really wonderful, recent, more recent book uh, that I've read uh, where a golem, which is the Jewish sort of created creature meets a Ginny, which is the Middle Eastern Arabic created creature, and they end up finding each other um, in fascinating ways. Now that golem isn't anything like the golem of Prague, but one of the things about the legend of the golem is it allows interpretation and change and difference. So there are a lot of books about the golem. There are comic books about the golem in the top left one there, the thing from the Fantastic Four battles a golem. There are stories of golems in various um, ways. Stan Lee, the head of Marvel Comics, liked golems. He's the uh, uh, one who did the one in the upper left and the bottom right. And this is a really interesting little um, uh, panel from Ripley's, believe it or not, in 1967. And it comes from a book called Jewish Women in Comics. Because what happens here is that um, 
the rabbi, uh, this is supposed to be the Maharal, uh, Prague, is creating the golem. And there you see the golem's form there. And he's telling his servant, get more clay. And then when you go down to the bottom, his wife, the Maharal's wife, starts to argue that he shouldn't do this. It's wrong to dabble in these kinds of forbidden arts. And he, she and her husband, the rabbi, have an argument about whether or not he should create a golem. The golem is used, you do a Google search of golem, you'll see thousands of images of golem. These are uh, many, many, they're little clay creatures. You, you can buy little clay creatures in Prague, for example, there are stores that sell these by the dozen little clay creatures of the golem. There are pictures here from movies. You can see there the picture that I showed you a minute ago. And not only that, the golem has been captured by the gaming community. And if you do video games, there are thousands of games that have the golem as characters. These are some of the examples. So the golem has entered popular culture you know, as powerfully perhaps as Frankenstein has, and today maybe even in some ways more. The golem was a character on uh, The Simpsons in a very funny episode where um, he goes back, Krusty the Clown is a Jewish character in The Simpsons and Bart goes backstage and finds a golem there that um, uh, Krusty and Krusty tells him the story of the golem and he got Krusty has created a golem to work for him. And then uh, Bart takes the golem and um, eventually also they have to get rid of that golem too because he goes out of control. Uh, here's a wonderful little article I found, a little post I hope on Craigslist. I hope it's tongue in cheek, but I love it because it's so funny. Wanted. One rabbi versed in the dark Talmudic arcs to create a golem for a household of three. Golem will perform rudimentary household chores such as dishes and sweeping, basic math tutoring for our daughter in third grade and basic household security. Golem must be obedient and fairly unobtrusive on our everyday lives. We will supply all materials, clay, twigs, calfskin, parchment, et cetera, needed to create the golem. All you need to do is use your magical ancient rabbinical school skills to animate said golem. Please note, we are looking for a rabbi to create a golem, an anthropomorphic being created from inanimate matter from Jewish folklore, not golem, a former hobbit turned into a monster and looking for precious. This is important. We have no interest in living with golem. We want a golem. Please respond, serious inquiry only. Uh, I love that. I just think uh, what a great sense of humor. And uh, something else very funny happened. I gave an earlier version of this talk at Northeastern University and Lori Lefkowitz, the head of the Jewish studies program there, gave me a cup completely not, not even recognizing that this was going to happen with coffee in it for my morning coffee. And I noticed I was about to give this talk and on the cup was this, it was a cup with a bunch of Yiddish sayings on it and on it included this one. Der Oilum is a goilum, which means the world is filled with asses, filled with um, you know, people who are not good people, where the golem there becomes a symbol of um, the idea of sort of moronic human beings. So that's the idea of the golem, the story of the golem, and the way the golem has been used a little bit in modern thinking.
Now let's move to Frankenstein. So Frankenstein, of course, we all know something about it. What an extraordinary story. The more I learned about it over time, the more remarkable it became. The story, uh, which some of you might know, is that uh, Mary uh, Shelley, at that time, Mary, Mary uh, Wallenstonecraft, she had not married Percy Shelley yet. She was with, I mean, not, yeah, Percy Shelley. She was with Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, um, a physician named John William Polidori, and Mary's stepsister, Claire uh, Claremont, um, and they went to Italy um, and uh, were in this villa. And it was a rainy night with nothing to do. So Lord Byron charged them to write a kind of horror novel. And they all wrote novels. What people don't remember about that is that Polidori wrote a novel about a vampire that became the basis for Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. So out of that little contest came the two most iconic sort of horror figures in Western literary history, Frankenstein and Dracula. But anyway, uh, Mary wrote this book called Dracula. This is the original woodcut from the original edition. So that um, creature on the ground is supposed to be Dracula very much unlike the way she describes the creature. And if you have not read Dracula, I'm sorry, Frankenstein, and, or you have not read it since high school or something, you must read it again. It is a profound and powerful book, which is absolutely nothing like the vast majority of Frankenstein movies. So if you've only seen the movies, you know nothing about the book Frankenstein. In the book, the actual creation of the creature is one paragraph. While in most movies, it's most of the movie. Because she wasn't that interested in how the creature was created. She was interested in writing about the nature of humanity and what it means to be human. And I could talk for a long time about it, but what I really want to say about it is a very important part of that story that most people don't recognize. What is the pivotal moment of the book? The pivotal moment of the book is not the moment when Frankenstein is created, actually created, the monster is actually created, the monster is not named Frankenstein, the doctor is named Frankenstein. It's not the moment when the monster who has no name in the book is created. That, I, as I say, she dismisses that pretty quickly. This, the, the moment that is so important in the book is when Frankenstein rejects his monster. That's the important moment. Because everything that comes after that comes from the fact that he has put all of this energy and effort and many years of study and, 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 and learning from his mentors about how human flesh works and how the body is. And he has spent years and he finally has that moment of creation. And then moments later, he leaves having rejected what he created. And the question is why? What is it about? about the creature that makes Frankenstein reject the creature and then put into play the rest of the book. Most people don't remember. Here's what happens. He takes a look at this creature and he had wanted to create a beautiful simulacrum, a beautiful kind of human 
form that he could use to start a new race that would have no disease and no illness and would be stronger and faster. How can I describe my emotions? Frankenstein writes, Shelley writes for Frankenstein, at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch with whom, whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form. So what, why is he a wretch? What's the catastrophe? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful. He wanted to create a beautiful creature, beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast. With his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips, the different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two, two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. So why does he reject the creature? Because it is ugly. He rejects the creature because of an aesthetic judgment about the creature. The creature is horrible to behold. And thus, the creature's resentment is even more understandable. You created me and you rejected me because I'm not beautiful. And that's the problem with a lot of portrayals of Frankenstein because, you know, Lon Chaney's portrayal, I mean, I don't think that's a handsome human being on the left there, but it's not something you would necessarily run in horror from if you just saw, while Robert De Niro's portrayal of Frankenstein is probably a lot closer to what Shelley had in mind, something whose very appearance, and by the way, when Frankenstein appears later in the book to people, they run away in horror and they scream, and so his appearance has to reflect this idea of the kind of, you know, difficulty of his nature. And by the way, so we had uh, at the Center for Ethics where uh, we had a um, very famous artist, Ross Rawson, who was our artist in residence. He's a famous portrait artist. He's created portraits his whole life. He has his portrait of Jimmy Carter, as you've all seen, it's in the National Gallery. His portrait of Maya Angelou is the one that's on the US postage stamp. So he's very, very famous guy. He's got five or six portraits in the National Gallery. And he was our um, artist in residence in 2018 when we were celebrating the 200th anniversary. I was talking to him one day and I said, you know what you should do? You should paint, as a tribute, you should paint your vision of Frankenstein's creature. And he thought about it for me. He goes, I've never painted a, a non-living face. He goes, all of my portraiture has been of famous people or people who paid me to sit for them. I think it's a great challenge. And he looked up for me and he goes, and I know exactly what I would paint. And I said, what would you paint? He said, I want to paint a picture that from far away looks beautiful, but the closer you get, the more hard it looks. And, and there's, uh, that reflects what Shelley herself put in her book, that idea that from far away, you couldn't quite see it, but as you got close. But what he painted was interesting. It's by the way, based on his 15 year old son as the face. And this is the portrait that he painted. He took eyes actually from leopards. He tried to make the eyes look kind of lifeless. 
But the idea was from far away, it would just look like a face. But as you got closer and closer, you'd see the scarring, the black lips, the lifeless eyes. Um, so anyway, that's his interpretation of Frankenstein's creature. Uh, we now have that portrait at our center. I just thought I would show it to you and I'm gonna use it in, in a few minutes. Um, back in 1997, a sheep was cloned by the name of Dolly. Some of you may have heard of Dolly, the cloned sheep. And it started this kind of national, international hyperventilation about cloning. Uh, I'm still asked to speak about cloning all the time. I'll be speaking about cloning later this week. Um, this idea of creating a creature um, kind of out of nothing, though it is, of course, out of a living creature, to take a cell phone creature, has a Frankensteinian uh, idea to it. Leon Cass, Jewish writer, he wrote a commentary on the Bible. He was the head of President Bush's Bioethics Commission as uh, Dolly was cloned, wrote this article for the New Republic. They are human, they cannot be replicated. The moral repugnance of cloning, writing about what might happen if a human being were to get cloned. And in that story is this illustration. And that is an illustration of Frankenstein with a whole bunch of sort of deranged looking Dolly heads on his, uh, on his shirt. And he's trying to draw this comparison between cloning and Frankenstein. And what I wanna show you is that that has become a cottage industry. If you look at a lot of the writing, even favorable writing about genetic technologies, you see over and over again, Frankenstein being evoked to the point that Frankenstein is now a prefix, Franken foods, Franken genes, Franken cells, Franken rice, Franken mice. Um, it is used as a caution and as a scare tactic. Uh, genetic Franken food found not harmful to human health. Talk Franken food or farm fresh. So and, and Franken food here is a is a signifier of genetically modified foods. That is, they are Frankenstein's created. Not only that, but the whole Frankenstein idea as well as the Golem idea have come together to ask the because what, what is both the golem story and the Frankenstein story about in terms of their creation? They're about the question of that barrier, that line between the human and the non-human. For example, in the golem story, the rabbis ask things like, can a golem be included in a minion? Should a golem be circumcised? And the question isn't really about whether a golem should be included in a minion or about whether a golem could be circumcised. They're both questions about whether we should think of a golem as a human being, as the rights of a human being, the responsibility of a human being. Kelly asked the very same question. By the way, I didn't say this before, but there is a lot of belief and speculation in, by scholars that Shelley knew the story of the golem very well and based her uh, there's no proof of this, but there is some evidence for it that she based the story of Frankenstein on the story of the gold. So she herself asks that question. The creature asks that question. What am I? Am I a human being? Am I just to be discarded? Do I have no rights? 
And both of these have now been used in questions about how we should think about other creatures. If you look at stories about whether apes should have rights, about whether robots should have rights, Frankenstein and the golem often come up in those conversations. So they've become a model of the question of what it means to be human. They become the examples that are used against which we ask the question of the things we create that are like human beings. Um, how should we think about them? And now as we've moved, one of the things I'm working on a lot now is the ethics of artificial intelligence. You look at book after book after book that have come out recently on the ethics of artificial intelligence and you see over and over again that they either they often start with the Frankenstein story or they bring up the Golem story because they're all asking the same question. Where do human beings end and other ways of being in the world begin? Whether they're animals, whether they're robots, whether they're artificial intelligence, how can these liminal stories, these stories of creatures just on the edge of humanity, the Frankenstein and golems of the world, how can they inform the questions we have about the nature of what it means to be human? And by the way, just for fun, uh, we also have a whole literature talking about that in Judaism. Jew bots, Jew droids, uh, can a robot be Jewish? Should a robot be Jewish? Our Jewish robot future. Um, they actually created a robot that can create, um, that can write a Torah flawlessly. It is in the Jewish Museum in Berlin. It can write a Torah perfectly every time. Is that a kosher Torah? How should we think about a Torah written by a robot? All right, so let's get to the last part of the presentation and what we really want to ask about, which is Frankenstein and the gold. How do we think about them the same? Um, wonderful book, Golems Among Us, written by Byron Sherwin, a Jewish uh, studies scholar, tries to ask this question a little bit, but I'm going to approach it a little differently. I'm going to use as our symbol of the golem this picture, uh, this uh, character created by Paul Wegner from the 19, very famous 1950 movie called The Golem, where he directed and played the golem. So here is our Frankenstein and our golem. I'm going to use for Frankenstein the portrait painted by Ross Rosson for our center and the face of Paul Wagner. And uh, now I'm gonna go through the rest, uh, the end part of the talk comparing these two legends. So what does Frankenstein says? That the creation of life is improper. Dr. Frankenstein has transgressed. Most of history condemns him. And the book is clearly about the fact that he, I mean, the book shows many other ways that he is morally bankrupt and cowardly, um, but clearly his, his creating of the creature and then his abandonment of the creature are seen in, in universally by the book and by history as being transgressive. However, the creation of the golem is accepted in Judaism, is accepted in the Talmud. There are some rabbis who have trouble with it, but in general, it, it is. Rava isn't condemned for having done it. Um, you know, Yudah uh, uh, Hanasi's sons who create their edible golem, they don't get condemned um, because in Judaism, the, we uh, complete God's work of creation. So the ability to create ourselves is an acceptable part. And especially for those who do it out of piety, which we'll see in a minute, um, is the only way to create a golem. The creature is unnatural, a freak. Frankenstein abandons him, 
horror at the way this creature looks and because of his non-naturalness, the fact that he is not uh, like a human being, he made a mistake, but golems are extensions of the natural part of co-creation with God. Golems aren't seen as unnatural, they're seen as natural. They can be problematic, they can get out of control and you may need to stop them, but they're not outside the natural order of things. Frankenstein um, is different solely in his appearance and physiology, um, but he is a human being. I mean, the whole point of the story of Frankenstein is, am I not human like you? And the answer is yes, I've got all the rights, all the responsibilities. I deserve to be treated with respect and dignity, not to be abandoned because I'm ugly and not to be shunned and ostracized. That's the, that's the moral of um, the story of Frankenstein. On the other hand, the golem is not a human being. The golem has no real rights, has no souls, and there's nothing wrong with deactivating the golem because the golem was activated and deactivated as part of an act of creation and non-creation the same way you would create a robot and dismantle a robot. And here's an interesting thing. How is Frankenstein created? Frankenstein actually in the um, book is created from a lot of spare parts that are put together into a creature. It isn't just a whole corpse, like in some of the movies that's taken out and animated. In the book, Dr. Frankenstein gets various parts from various places and puts them together. So Frankenstein is constructed biologically. And then, I mean, the creature is constructed biologically and then Frankenstein animates the creature um, by the way, chemically, not electronically, not electrically through bolts the way it is in a lot of the movies. The golem is created genetically, not biologically. That is the rabbi, the rabbis use text, text in the mouth, text on the forehead to create the creature. It's not taking a biological entity and reanimating. It's using the power of words and the rabbi's ability to generate creation through words like God did, certainly not imitating God or at God's level, but because they have that level of piety, they have a certain ability to use that same technology, the power of letters and words to animate the goal. So how does that work exactly? So this is a um, passage from the Psalms, from Tehillim. And it says, Your eyes, meaning God's eyes, saw my go golem, saw my golem, which is often translated as unformed substance, though exactly what the word means is up for some interpretation. And in your book, everything about my life was written. This is a really fascinating passage, but notice how the unformedness of me, and some people interpret this to me as a fetus or before I was born, I was a golem, and God could see that. 
this could be used to say that God knows us before we're born and God knows everything about us into the future. It has been used, by the way, for by um, Christian pro-life people to say, you see, even when you're an unformed fetus, God knows you, therefore you have some existence. It's a very interesting and different kind of passage. But it ties together in this frame, the, I, the um, idea of the golem, the idea of the written word. And so, you know, the idea of God's power and, and, and um, you know, the letters of God's name, which are often used themselves in a mystical way in the Kabbalah, and the idea of the fact that we think of our very nature, our genetic nature as letters, has been used as metaphor. And it's used, you know, it, it's very strongly a part of the Golem story and not of the Frankenstein story. Frankenstein is a scientist putting together pieces of already created creatures to animate them. The Maharal is a powerful, pious human being using God's very own um, technologies to try in his own modest way to be creative. And we'll get back to that a little bit in a minute as I end up and I'm almost finished. The creature is anonymous, often just called the monster, called the creature. It has some other uh, things that it calls itself. I mean, that it is called, the only thing it ever calls itself is actually Adam. It calls itself Adam, thinking of itself as the first of its kind. But it has no name throughout the book. It is the creature. The golem, on the other hand, does it have a name? Well, remember, this is a legend. So Rosenberg wrote a book, Niflaot Maharal, the, the Miracles of, of the Maharal. Um, and he names the creature Joseph and claims that that was the creature's name. But, you know, us Jews, we get to know the creature. We want to give him a nickname. So we call him Yosela. So in the book, he actually calls the golem Yosela. Yosela golem. Let me take a quick digression here to say something important because it's going to be important for the last couple of points I want to make. How do you make a living creature? Well, how do you create a golem? And here I go back to that, what I said I would tell you later when I discussed um, the uh, original creation of the golem in, in the, the text. So how do you create a golem? Orava well, said, there is a passage in the Torah that says, your iniquities, your sins, have separated you and your God, and your sins have hid God's face from you, from you so that God will not hear. Well, the logic of that is, if sins are what distance us from God, and the more sinful we are, the more separated we are, the more, you know, mavdil, the separation, then the less sinful you are, the closer you are to God. And so Rava's point is, if, I, if you're a very pious person, if you're a great rabbi, and you see very little, you can be closer to God, and therefore more able to experience the same kinds of powers that God has, and therefore you can, in a very rudimentary way, do some of the things that God can do, like animating dust, which God does to make a dove. And that's why in the Jewish view of the golem, 
the more pious you are, the closer to creating a human you, you can be. While Chanina and you know, the, the sons of Yehuda Nasi can only create a lamb to eat, the Maharal can create. How does that compare to um, the Frankenstein story? Well, in the wonderful movie, Young Frankenstein, the, the funny parody of it, Young Frankenstein goes into his grandfather's laboratory where he created the first creature and he finds his book. And what his book is called is just how I did it. And all Frank, young Frankenstein has to do is follow the formula of his grandfather and he can create a creature also, and he does. So with Frankenstein, anyone can do it if you have the right technical knowledge. You just have to be trained in the science. While with the golem, only the righteous can manipulate life and the degree of success is correlated with their degree of righteousness. Frankenstein, the doctor, is motivated by glory and hubris. He does talk about creating a set of creatures that can um, never get sick and can move humanity the next steps and eliminate illness. But really, he also talks about how these creatures are going to worship him. So it isn't only about um, curing. There's also a deep ego need there. While and he writes, no one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onward like a hurricane while he was working on Frankenstein. In the first enthusiasm of success, life and death appeared to me ideal bounds, which I should break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. They will worship me. They will thank me. I'm doing this in part so that I can have this race of creatures who will see me as their father and their founder while the golem is created with humility out of service and protection of the people, the opposite of Frankenstein's um, uh, motivation. So there's a fundamental difference in these two stories. Uh, one is about the limits of scientific progress. It's about um, hubris. It's about not respecting limits, or at least not thinking enough about them as we transgress them. The other one is about piety and humility. It's about using the natural you know, methodologies of the world to create something for the purposes of protection and of helping humanity. And very wisely and very importantly, being able to stop and reverse what you're doing if you have to. There is a kill switch, a suicide switch, in the golem. You can stop the golem. The end of the story of Frankenstein finds Victor Frankenstein dying and then finally dead on a ship in the Arctic where he has gone with a gun to hunt down the creature that he created and to kill it because it's the only way to stop this, this monster that he has created that has now gone around and killed so many and he fails and the last scene of the movie is the monster floating away on an ice floe, still alive while Victor lies there having failed and having passed. While the story of the Maharal is one where the Maharal removes the creature from the um, community because it has gone out of control, 
and he continues to serve the community as their leader. Dr. Frankenstein abandons his uh, namesake and seeks him out. The golem, uh, the rabbi takes full responsibility for the golem, for his creation, for his actions, and ultimately stopping him. Um, he must kill the creature in order to stop him, while with the golem, the rabbi can easily reverse what he has done. So finally, the message of Shelley and Frankenstein is about responsibility, aesthetics, humility, hypocrisy, the goals and limits of science, and this question of what it means to be human. And the moral of the story of the golem, it's also about some of that, but it's about piety and service and real reflection on what human beings should and shouldn't do, and then finally also what it means to be human. So both of these stories have a lot to teach us. They teach us two different lessons. They give us two different models of creation. Um, and I think both are very instructive as we move into an era where human beings are creating artificial life in a new way and can turn to both of these stories to an incredible story written by an, a young girl um, 200 years ago and this incredibly rich tradition of the golem in Jewish history to try to solve some of the problems that we are faced in modern technology. Thanks for your attention. Amazing, Professor Wolpe, thank you so much. Amazing presentation, it's so fascinating. Friends, we wanna invite you to uh, share some questions here. We have about uh, seven or eight minutes left if you wanna unmute yourself or if you wanna write in the chat with your questions. We welcome that now. Hi, Joan. I think you unmuted yourself. Yeah, I, I did, but I, I can't. Let me think about how I want to phrase my. Okay, great. So, uh, by the way, you know, someone wrote about data in the chat about data in Star Trek. Someone else wrote about Pinocchio. This idea of animating non animate life as a way to try to understand that barrier between what is human and what is not human. What does it mean to, what, what are the characteristics that make us most human? I mean, that of course, though these are the two most famous and powerful stories about it, it's been part of literature and, and you know, long before science fiction. And some people consider Frankenstein, I consider Frankenstein the first real science fiction novel ever since that's been a theme in literature and in, in television and movies. And um, because it's a, it is a very, it is important both before the age of real modern technology, because we need to know what are those things that make us so uniquely human. And then we also now need to know as we create things that can mimic human intelligence and human actions, um, how do we keep that differentiation clear? And these kinds of stories can help us think those things through. Wonderful. Anyone else want to jump in? Yeah, I figured out how to phrase it, I think. Great. Um, I'm wondering about free will. I think part of the problem with the golem is that the golem did have some free will, that he went and went out and caused all sorts of trouble because the rabbi couldn't really control him. Right. And that humans like the golem go out and cause all sorts of trouble because God can't really control us. Kind of makes me wonder if free will was actually a good idea, but <laughs> it, it's here, so... Yeah. you know, whatever. 
But I think that that's part of it's it. A, it's that a wonderful. That golem has free will for good or evil. It's a wonderful observation, Joan, and I agree with you completely. What's interesting about it, of course, is that in this story, it is not free will itself that differentiates human beings and non-human beings because the golem has free will. But if you think about it, that makes sense because animals seem to have free will, right? What differentiates, as I said, one of the key differentiators is the ability to use language, um, which animals don't have in the rabbinical meaning of language here. They have vocalization and communication, but they don't have language. So yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great point about free will. And it's one that actually is debated a lot. Uh, in some other talk, we can talk about modern neuroscience um, in which there's a big argument going on about whether we have any free will at all or whether free will is actually an illusion, a byproduct of our brain activity. And really um, everything that we do is predetermined by our brains. Did the creature really go out of control in Frankenstein? He doesn't really kill many people. His only victims are people close to Victor, who he was specifically getting revenge on. He was yeah. not going on a rampage killing townspeople no. like the movies portrayed. Right. And so he, it's it's very limited and is not really a you know an out get it going out of control as the way I... Well, he was, he was in Victor Frankenstein's view and in the view of the um, people of the town, he was out of control. He was, I mean, people were dying and he was uh, uh, terrorizing the town because people were found you know, killed by this creature. Um, we understand the creature's motivations, but a lot of murderers have understandable motivations that doesn't excuse them from being murderers. And that's one of the tensions in the book itself, of course, because Shelley is trying to, Shelley writes the creature as a victim, right? The whole point of the book yeah. is that um, Victor Frankenstein did the creature wrong um, and the creature uh, has struggled. I mean, it's a very psychological portrait of a victim, a really interesting one and that has been deconstructed that way by psychologists. Uh, really brilliant sort of insight from a young girl of what it means to be a victim. Um, Bad parenting. Yeah, yeah, no parenting. Um, and, uh, he, and he goes out and kills in revenge, which of course is not an acceptable thing. Um, but yeah, but it is different than the golem. But interestingly, the golem, insofar as we talk about the golem having a motivation, I mean, the Maharal creates a golem to, golem to protect the Jewish people from the townspeople that are terrorizing them, and he kills some of them. But isn't that, is that really that much different than Frankenstein's, the creature's motivation? Um, now, in one version of the story, it's then, then the golem gets really out of control and starts killing Jews. In one version of the story, he even threatens the Maharal. I mean, there are, diff there are a lot of different versions of the way this story is told. But in some of the telling, there's a parallel there too of um, you know, the creature motivated to protect the Jews and goes overboard and Frankenstein's creature motivated to get revenge and goes overboard. We have uh, one last question here from Rabbi Josh Fixler. Um, hey, thanks for this. This has been really wonderful. I I'm wondering if there's a distinction to be made in the way that you were talking to the not the last question, but the one before about um, playing God, which is what Dr. Frankenstein is always accused of doing, 
And the task of the golem in making the golem is not exactly playing God. It's more emulating God with the desire to draw close to God, to understand right. God by, by being near to God's actions. Right. And I think, you know, in the way you use those two phrases, that's clearly true. I've always found the idea of playing God, which I am asked, I give a lot of talks on genetics and I give a lot of talks on neuroscience. I give a lot of talks on genetics. I get on, on cloning and things like that. I get asked the playing God question all the time. People saying, well, aren't the scientists playing God? And here's the thing about playing God. Well, let's, let's just for one second, unpack that term. What we really mean when we say playing God, I mean, look, human beings have played God since the day we created civilization. If you look around yourself today, you have seen nothing, and I really mean nothing, unless you saw the sun, that has not been either created or profoundly affected by human beings. And that includes the clouds. And that includes all the quote unquote natural things. You saw the grass and the trees. I guarantee you that whatever grass and trees you saw were planted by human beings. We have played God in every way that you can play God. We've changed the planet. We've, you know, so playing God doesn't really just mean manipulating the world. It means when we use the phrase, stepping over some boundary, violating some limit. That's what we really mean by the term playing God. We don't really mean playing God because we do that all the time. When we say this person played God, we mean, didn't they take a step too far in how far human beings should go in changing and manipulating our world? And that's the question. Did Frankenstein take a step too far? Well, he didn't take a step any further than the golem. He took the step differently than the golem. He created a creature without humility, without piety, without a purpose, a real purpose, just to see if he could do it. And then when it didn't turn out like he wanted, he took no responsibility for it. Those were the transgressions. In fact, Shelley herself does not seem to condemn the science. There's nowhere in that book that says, you shouldn't, or even implies, you shouldn't try to do this. The whole book, when you read it carefully, is a condemnation, not of the science, but of the scientist. Not of trying to pursue knowledge, but of trying to pursue knowledge recklessly. It's, it's an amazingly sophisticated book for, for a young uh, girl of her age and, and of her, um, uh, you know, she was a teenager. And yet she saw insights that are just so profound, really, really remarkable um, achievement, I think, Amazing. that book. Thank you so much. You know, you know looking at Professor Wolpe's uh, uh, very broad academic work and beyond, it's, it, it was so hard to choose this topic among so many others. <laughs> so we hope we'll have other opportunities to learn from him, really a first-rate ethicist on working on so many crucial issues of our day. So friends, if you are local, we hope you will join us for our solidarity rally at six o'clock or for Megillah and Purim at seven. If you're not local or are local, we hope you'll join us with Rabbi Talushkin in two weeks. Next week, Rab, or actually, we can have with Rabbi Lapatin. Is Judaism woke or unwoke? We hope to see you soon. Purim Sameach. Thank you, Professor Wolpe, and thank you, all of you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. 
If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.